0: as we wrap up the first part of Acts, um, the question I have is, is this really happening? As I read Acts chapter 12, that's the question that comes to mind because that's the question that people in Acts 12 are, really, they're wrestling with. Let me ask you this. Have you ever faced something so crazy difficult or so crazy wonderful that you asked yourself, is this really happening? And what do you do When an egomaniac who dresses like a rock star and is so threatened by the message about Jesus that he kills one of your leaders and imprisons another. See, Acts 12 is filled with tragedy and triumph. It's filled with irony and humor. It shows us what the first followers of Jesus did when a political leader turned violent against them. And it shows us who's really in control when everything seems Out of control. You see, the first followers of Jesus had one central message. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed king of Israel, the one who brings redemption to Israel, but not only to Israel, to the world. And the high priest in Jerusalem and the religious authorities, they weren't at all happy about this message. And they were trying to shut it down again and again, but they couldn't. What we find in Acts 12 is King Herod, who ruled Palestine, he was really a puppet king of Rome, he decides to step in and do something about this new movement. Now, why does he do it? I believe he's threatened by their message, but he also wants to keep peace between the Jews and Rome at all costs. We're going to learn three things here. First, there's violent opposition. Second, there's intense prayer that happens. Third, there's divine rescue, and actually we're learning four things. Fourth, there's divine opposition. So let's look at uh, chapter 12 in Acts. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. You see, he thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish uh, people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. What kind of prayer meeting is that? All right, let's keep going. We'll get to that. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Okay. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that, that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Uh, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing uh, the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Violent opposition. King Herod is trying to shut down the message about King Jesus. We learn that James is killed. Just like that, one sentence describes it. James, the apostle. You know, one of the sons of thunder, one of the closest disciples of Jesus? He's gone. He was martyred. Herod saw that that pleased the Jews, and so he arrests Peter, intending to put him to death, I'm sure. But because it was during the feast of unleavened bread, which was Passover, he puts him in prison since it was customary to wait until after the feast. It's really reminiscent of another trial that was held before Passover. If you remember, Jesus was publicly tried and executed during that season. So here Peter is in prison awaiting a public trial that will most likely lead to his public execution. Herod actually thinks the fate of the church is in his hands. There's violent opposition against the church. What does it lead to? It leads to intense prayer. Peter is asleep in prison, we're told, but the church is wide awake in prayer. The church takes up their weapon of choice. This isn't the first time opposition has come their way, and we know that. If you've been here for any length of time through the series in Acts, you know that this isn't the first time the church has faced opposition, but it is the first time. It is the first time that Herod is involved this way, and it's the first time that their leaders have been targeted this way. So this wasn't casual prayer on their part. This isn't just passive, indifferent. Okay, I guess we'll we'll get together and pray. We're told this is earnest prayer. It literally, uh, the word earnest, it means stretch out. So the idea here in their prayer is that it's continuous, wholehearted, urgent pleading. It's intense, agonizing prayer. Listen, James is dead, and now Peter's on trial, and it's 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 or he's going to be on trial in the morning, and. It'll probably lead to his execution. Come on, let's rally the troops for prayer. And that's exactly what they did. And they prayed all night long. They're crying out to the only one who can intervene. How much do we persevere in prayer? Are we learning to pray? You might be uncomfortable. It might stretch you. and It does me. Are we praying? Are we a praying church? Are we a praying people? Are we individually going to God in prayer? You know, my prayer for us as a church is that we would grow in our faith, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel we've received, that we've come to know, that we would mature, be strengthened in our faith. I want that for me as well. And two things that will help us uh, to really be mature in our faith is to be in the word consistently, pressing into God, learning from him, uh, just hearing from him through his word, seeing his character and his ways just, just fall off the page. We need, we need to encounter God that way, but also prayer. And you're like, oh, of course, Darren, read the word and pray. I get it. But are we doing it on a consistent basis? And not just to check it off, but for relationship. It was earnest prayer. They were desperate. One of the core desires of local church St. Pete is expectation and dependency. You can look, actually on our website, we have this PDF called Core Desires. I encourage you to read it if you're new. I have it on my phone. I pray through that list of core desires but one of them is expectation and dependency. And it says this, we believe God will do great things for our good and his glory. We want to trust him and lean on him through prayer in every way. We want to do that as a church, as a community. Is there growing expectation in your heart for what God is able to do in the lives of those we're praying for? Is there growing expectation in your heart for what God's able to do through, in and through you? Is there a growing dependency? There's so many other things that we can lean on in our culture. When, you know, the going gets tough, we can look to other things. But are we looking to God in dependency? So here it is. It's Passover time. It's a time of celebration. The irony here in this story is that Passover was specifically a time to celebrate God's intervention, his deliverance of Israel out of bondage of all things. And here's Peter. The leader of the church, and he's in bonds and chains. He's imprisoned during the season of Passover that's celebrating God's intervention and God's victory over their imprisonment. There's a lot of irony in this story, but there's an intensity in the church's prayers, and I I want us to understand it a little bit more, this earnestness that they were walking in in prayer. One author says this, and it'll be up here on the screen, like Abraham pleading for Sodom, like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night, like Moses standing in the gap for Israel, like Hannah, if you remember that story, just intoxicated with sorrow. The priest thought that she was drunk. She was so sorrowful. She was praying and just She's praying to the Lord like David, brokenhearted, heartbroken, full of remorse and grief over what he had done. How about like a parent, like a parent who cries out for their wayward child? How about like a wife who prays for her husband to know Jesus? I think of the many times I pleaded for Valerie when when she was facing yet another brain surgery. She has a, a brain tumor in her brain stem She's, she's good now. She'll outlive me, I'm sure. But we didn't know. We weren't sure years ago. And She was in and out of, of surgeries, and it was scary. It was touch and go. And we're just crying out to God, desperate before him. And, and honestly, the hardest prayer I ever prayed was, while waiting for her after she had been intubated and she had to endure another surgery, was, God, let your will be done here. It was, I, was, I, wasn't surrender, I wasn't like giving up. I wanted her healed. I wanted her well. I wanted the doctors to, to do what they had to do to keep her alive. But I also prayed, God, I, I, I want your will. I want your will to be done here. It was a scary prayer for me. I didn't know what his will was at the time. We don't always know God's will, but that shouldn't keep us from praying earnestly. Do you think they prayed for James? What about James? Of course they did. Do you think they were just reeling over the death of James? It's not like James was like nobody to them. Do you think it mattered to them that he was martyred? Do you think it hurt? Do you think they missed him? Of course. The death of James, it, it doesn't silence their prayers. That's awesome. It, they don't toss out God's love because James died. And there's a powerful testimony of God's sustaining grace in the life of the early church. But you know what? Each one of us have that same testimony. If we think about the things, the trials that we've been through, that we look back and we're like, man, I just didn't like that. I did not like the outcome of that. But God, I saw you just work still in and through that. It was hard to see it in the midst of it. And I didn't like what was going on. But but I, I just, I can look back and see your sustaining grace. It's a testimony of your sustaining grace. And we're seeing that in the life of the church here. Third, we see divine rescue. There was earnest prayer. And it did lead to rescue in the Passover season. (laughs) In verse 6, this is the night before Peter's trial, we're told. So we're getting close, and the suspense is building. Peter's asleep, though. (laughs) That's, all right, Peter, you just, you're good, I guess. (laughs) Or he was exhausted, right? Right? He's chained between two soldiers, and with sentries on guard. They have like sixteen uh, soldiers guarding him. This is a high security prison we're talking about. And you know Peter had escaped before, but not this time. Herod's in charge, remember, and Herod doesn't want Peter to just slip out of prison this time. But God intervenes, and what's really pretty humorous is that Peter can't believe it, not at first. There's a lot of irony and humor in this story. Did did you know that the Bible actually has humor? He thought it was a dream, and and, and we're told between really between the two suddenly, suddenly an angel appears in verse seven, and then in verse ten suddenly that angel left. It was in that between the two suddenlies that Peter is just he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's seeing a vision. He doesn't think it's really happening. So here the light just breaks into the cell where he is in prison. It's like turning on a bright light in the dark of night. Angel had to strike Peter on the side. Wake up. He was really sleeping. Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. You ever wake someone up when they're really sleeping? I have a habit, a bad habit, of talking to Valerie as she's falling asleep. I'm talking like asking like, Real like detailed questions, and now she's really she's caught on. So she sleeps with uh, you know earplugs and a pillow over her face. Yeah, it's true, it's true. You know, but if I ever wake her up when she's dead asleep, and I'm talking for legit reasons now, okay. And you know what a legit reason is? A legit reason is when your cat brings in an animal, and that's when you really realize you realize. All right, we're a team here. We're a team. This happened a few weeks ago. I didn't know what Hugo, our cat, brought in, but I was not facing it alone. And if it was a rat, I was definitely like, I didn't know what I was going to do because I hate rats. But thankfully, it was a pigeon and everything was fine. Our living room had feathers everywhere, no joke. And Valerie, she goes to sweep up the pigeon and it flies, it it comes to life. We're like, she falls back onto the couch. It was great, it was great. And I was just standing back letting her do all that. <laughs> okay. I got the pigeon. I... We're a team, remember. Woke her up. What was happening? That, that was surreal. It, it didn't seem like it was real. But what was happening to Peter was truly surreal. Especially after being woken up like that. He thought he was seeing a vision or ha- was having a dream. And in verse 9 it says he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. In verse 11, look what happens there. Look what he says. Then Peter came to himself in the cool of the night. Came to himself, and he said, Now I know without a doubt. I had wondered if this was really happening, but now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Deliverance. knows without a doubt. He better know without a doubt. I mean, the gate opened on its own. God intervened and Peter just couldn't believe it. Also, God intervened and the church couldn't believe it. We're going to continue with the irony and humor here in the story. So Peter heads straight to Mary's house. It's a gathering place for the church in Jerusalem or one of the many houses that uh, was a gathering place. We learn that this is John Mark's home. Uh, This is the Mark of the Gospels, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we learn this is his home, and they're having this prayer meeting, and they're, they're praying earnestly, they're praying together, and they're praying throughout the night. I think it's important that we speak a little bit about prayer here again. Prayer is not magic. Okay? God is not ours to control like a divine butler or a genie in the bottle. That's not how it works. Prayer, though, is a gift and it's about relationship. It's an invitation to join God on his mission. And sometimes God answers in ways we didn't ask. I know you can relate to that. Sometimes he works in different ways with different people. And God's help in our times of trouble, it might look like the type of help we actually ask for or not. But he calls us to faithful obedience calls us to trust him to believe that he has our best interests at heart to believe that he loves us and that he's in control you know james died 20 years later peter would be crucified wasn't peter's time god had things for peter to do Sometimes God answers exactly how we ask, even if we're struggling to believe it. What we learn here, as the report is brought to the church that Peter's escaped, or not escaped, he's been freed from prison. He's knocking at the door. I mean, he gets through the gate, and he can't get through the gate at Mary's house. The irony there, right? Just knocking on that door. Knocking on that door. No one's opening. I'm sure he tried. You know, he hears him praying for him, you know. It's the irony Rhoda, oh, it's Peter. She runs back. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. You're crazy. You know? No, it really is. It must be his angel. Now, I, what's the deal with that? Why did they think that was his angel? There's a lot of talk about why and what, the, what Jews believed at that time and um, that maybe uh, it was his guardian angel or maybe they had thought maybe he had actually died. and It just, they didn't believe it was him. They were praying for Peter, praying for God's will to be done, but they didn't believe Peter was at the door. Interesting. God isn't hindered, though, by earthly kings like Herod. He isn't hindered by death. He isn't hindered by imprisonment, and he isn't hindered by our struggle to believe. Peter was rescued. The gates of the prison leading to the city were opened for him, he was knocking at that outer gate of Mary's home, trying to convince Rhoda it's, it's really him. The praying church doesn't believe. You know, I can relate to this scene. It actually encourages me when we see the early church acting this way. The early church was made up of people like you and me. And they're perceived as having it all together at times, never doubting. But that just isn't the case. I picture Rhoda just interrupting them as they're praying. Uh, uh, guys, no, seriously, l- listen. What happened? Verse 17, they were astonished. The word is beside themselves. They go wild. They go crazy. It's Peter. <laughs> the whole place just erupts. And he has to quiet them down. All right, all right. I love you too. This is awesome, I know. Tell James. Tell the others, all right, I'm getting out of here. (laughs) I'm sure he goes off into hiding. Then God intervenes, uh, you know, he he continues to intervene, and, and I imagine Herod can't believe it either. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great tried to kill baby Jesus. That didn't go well. The Herods were filled with paranoia, egotistical rivalry, all the drama that you would expect to go with that. And in verse 18, it says, after Peter is found that he's not in prison, there's no small commotion there among the guards. You got that right. Those guards are freaking out because they know the code of the day. If you lose the man that's supposed to be executed, you're going to be executed. And that's exactly what happened. Pete, uh, Herod is humiliated, I'm sure. He's angry. He's reactive. He's frustrated. Soldiers are executed. And then Herod books it to Caesarea. Caesarea which was the central seat of government. It was a city dedicated to Caesar with temples and amphitheaters and a a palace for Herod. And he was going there to meet delegates from uh, Tyre and Sidon. There was obvious disagreement between them and they wanted to make things right with Herod because Herod was really their answer to their food supply. And so we learn that there was at first from Herod, this violent opposition where he's trying to shut down the message of King Jesus. Well, finally, we've arrived at point four, which is divine opposition, divine opposition. King Herod is shut down and the message about King Jesus spreads. King Herod tried to shut down the message of King Jesus. And now King Herod is shut down and the message of Jesus, Jesus continues to spread so the jewish historian josephus he writes about actually this scene in verses 21 through 23 it's interesting he actually describes herod dressed like elton john he he didn't write it that way but here's how he wrote it he said herod is dressed he wore a silver threaded costume that sparkled and gleamed when the sun hit it it's like elton john Everybody, I'm sure, was like, oh, wow, nice. <laughs> Herod was digging his position. He was digging his authority. He was digging his, his costume, I'm sure. He had all the pomp, all the royal attire. There he was on his throne. He's in the middle of a glorious moment of fame and triumph and authority. The crowds are cheering. <sighs> Herod, Herod, what are they saying? This is the voice of a god. You're not a man. You're a god. And Herod basks in it for a fleeting moment. Now I'm talking fleeting moment. Josephus, Josephus describes Herod as being overcome by excruciating pain. Now there's questions, what was going on? Did his appendix burst? Was there an infestation of roundworms? Was, was he poisoned by arsenic? We don't actually know, but we know that he died. Five days later, actually, the historian reports that Herod died. He suffered for five days. Now, we read here, an angel of the Lord struck him down. But that doesn't mean it was a quick death. It does mean that God was ultimately responsible for it. This is divine opposition. And there's this intentional contrast between verse 23 and 24, and it drives the point home. Verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So what do you have here? The one with the voice of God set in stark contrast against the word of God. The one who supposedly has the voice of a God put in contrast against the actual word of God. King Herod went head-to-head with King Jesus, and he lost. Now, this story has really helped me appreciate how the Word of God will continue long after I'm dead. But not only after I'm dead, while I'm alive, too. I want it to encourage all of us. This this story is filled with all kinds of things, right? Right? prayer and uh, violent opposition but ultimately this narrative this story it, it leads us to this line to this verse verse 24 but the word of God continued to spread and flourish there was all this opposition I mean there was there was uh, James died Peter was imprisoned the church didn't believe that Peter was delivered and then he went into hiding and uh, Herod seemed like he was in control of everything but no 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 he wasn't the word of God It continued to spread, and it continued to flourish. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah poetically prophesied about God's word. I want us to read it. In Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. We'll start in verse 8, actually. For my thoughts are not your thoughts... Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Look with me in Isaiah 40 now, 40 verse 7. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Paul later would go on to write this to Timothy in his last letter before he was martyred he said in in second timothy chapter two in verse nine but i'm in chains he's writing to me i'm in i'm in chains i'm like a criminal but god's word is not chained you see what paul understood he understood isaiah 50 55 he understood isaiah 40 he understood the story of the early church i might be in chains but god's word is not chained Jesus is in control, and his word is moving forward regardless of who tries to stop it. Are you inspired by this scene? We are alive. This isn't a dream. The chains are off. The gates are open. The church is praying still. The word continues to increase and spread and multiply. And what does this mean? It's still having its intended impact on the hearts and lives of those who hear its message. It's how we got here. The word of God. It accomplished what it set out to accomplish in our hearts and lives, that we would bow our knee to King Jesus. You see, he conquered our rebel hearts. And it continues to accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. You can't stop the unstoppable. God's word is not chained. It will continue to increase and multiply. Does that stir your heart? Does that put a fire in your heart? Maybe God's word is actually doing in you what you never expected it to do. And you find yourself with this increased desire to actually know Jesus and walk with him and follow him and know his will. Maybe that's you this morning. You've never had those desires. These are new desires that are just rising up inside your your heart, your life. You're you're feeling it. You're going about your week and you're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. Because God's word is having its way in your heart and life it's setting out to accomplish what it sets out to accomplish let me encourage you to humbly bow to king jesus today if you have not look to him as your hope and savior your joy your treasure that's who jesus is how will this impact our lives this story How will it impact the way we suffer? I'm going to die one day. But God's word will continue to spread and multiply. That fills me with joy. But while I'm alive, and as I have this relationship with the living God, I can be confident that his word will accomplish what it sets out to accomplish in my heart. He's begun a good work. He'll complete that good work. And I can be confident when I proclaim his word that it will set out to accomplish what it accomplishes. It will accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. It'll transform hearts and lives. It can give us that confidence in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of prayer. Does it fill you with joy? Does it fill you with confidence and faith that God's word cannot fail? That it will... Continue to multiply and spread. I pray that it does. We've learned a lot from the early church, haven't we? Those first followers of Jesus. What does it mean to follow Christ? We want to continue to move forward asking that question. What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus, living my life, just my life bowed before King Jesus? Putting everything out there. Here I am, Lord. I belong to you. You've transformed, my, you've transformed my heart. You've lived that perfect life in my place, and you died on the cross for my sins. You were raised to life, and I follow you now. What does it mean to live that life out? What does it mean to make disciples? Even though we're done with the book of Acts, at least for now, we're going to continue to ask this question as we move forward. The next series we're beginning, starting next Sunday, is is called The Incomparable Christ. We're going to explore Colossians. It's a short letter found in the New Testament, four chapters long. It's my go to book. I have a well worn path in my Bible to the book of Colossians. Why? It holds high the supremacy of Christ, the centrality of Christ. The church of Colossae, well, they were growing, they were maturing in Christ. But they were tempted to believe that other things were more important than Jesus. So they were starting to drift. And Paul writes to them this beautiful letter that I know will be an encouragement and strength to us. That's what we're starting next Sunday. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for Acts 12. What we've learned of you in this chapter and what we've learned of your word. There's a lot of stuff coming at us in life. But we've learned here from Acts 12 that whether it's death or imprisonment, opposition, even our own unbelief, that it's not too hard for you to overcome, that you're in control, and that even when it looks like things are out of control, you still got it. Your word will continue to spread and flourish. Would you build our faith? Would you grow our joy and confidence in your word, we pray? And God, would you continue to just work in our hearts? Help us to see that the work you've begun, you'll complete and you're faithful. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for our time. Amen.